Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Adam Voigt, Director of the Center for Urban Education and Associate Professor at Cleveland State University. It is my great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Senior Fellow at the University of Chicago Consortium on School Research, Dr. John Q. Easton. In 1987, then U.S. Secretary of Education William Bennett called Chicago Public Schools the worst public school system in America. Swift reforms followed, including the establishment of the University of Chicago Consortium on School Research, commonly known as the U Chicago Consortium or the CCSR, which conducts research that informs and assesses policy and practice in the Chicago public schools. Since its inception, the consortium has tracked data and provided research to help educators solve the most difficult problems facing urban schools. Over the past 10 years, at least 13 cities, including New York, Los Angeles, and in the past two years, Cleveland, have replicated uh, or attempted to replicate the consortium's model for place-based research practice partnerships. The results in Chicago are striking. Last year, a study from Stanford University showed that Chicago's students have learned at a faster rate than 96% of all school districts in the country, including its wealthier and more well-resourced peers. How did they do it? What can Cleveland and other urban school districts learn from Chicago's success? Well, today we'll find out. Dr. Easton has been affiliated with the U Chicago Consortium, uh, Consortium since its inception in 1990 and became its deputy director in 1997 and executive director in 2002. He also served as vice president of programs at the Spencer Foundation in Chicago and as director of the Institute of Education Sciences at the US Department of Education. Dr. Easton holds a Bachelor's of Arts degree from Hobart College, a Master of Science degree from Western Washington University, and a PhD in Education from the University of Chicago. Ladies and gentlemen, members of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Dr. John Easton. Thanks very much, Adam. I have to... Uh, I dropped my mic here, so I'd have to do a little housekeeping to put it on. I'll stick it in my pocket. Well, I'm really, really pleased to be here. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate the nice turnout. And I'm especially uh, happy to see some young people that I uh, hope can uh, enjoy today's presentation, too. So Adam gave you a little background. I, uh, in Chicago for a very long time, and I went back to I went back in Washington, Chicago to Washington, uh, but I got to return to my roots, the consortium, this past uh, fall. Um, I really believe in the work of the consortium. I think it's uh, been very important. I think it's served as a model for research practice partnerships, 
And I think that they're a really valuable tool in the school improvement process. And I'm really happy to see that the Cleveland Alliance for Edu Research Al Education, I got it a little mixed up, uh, has taken root uh, and is active and, and productive. Um, so I'd like to take a moment to congratulate the partners in this endeavor, the Metropolitan School District of Cleveland, uh, Cleveland State University, and the American Institutes for Research. And to you in the broader civic community for your interest in this work, and I hope your support of it as well. I have to mention that sometime 10 or 12 years ago, I can't quite figure out exactly when, I came to Cleveland for a day and spent an entire day at the Cleveland Foundation uh, along with several district leaders who were talking about possible creation of a research practice partnership modeled on Chicago. So that was a long time ago, but now we're here and I think um, it, ready to see some great work and progress. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the recent uh, improvements in Chicago public schools, talk about the idea of research practice partnerships more generally. I'm going to give a specific example of research use in Chicago public schools uh, and show how research helped the district improve graduation rates. And then finally, a little bit more general about how and why research can influence practice in a productive way. Um, you may have heard, actually Adam just mentioned this news that the, there have been great improvements in the Chicago public schools over the last decade. Uh, a very prominent Stanford University researcher named Sean Reardon has amassed this gigantic data set uh, with math and reading test scores from almost every school district in the country from about 2009 uh, up to the present. The present. With a testing expert named Andrew Ho, who's a professor at Harvard, they used these complicated methods to make state tests across states comparable to each other. And one of the first findings that caught our attention in Chicago was a graph that some of you can see that shows the 100 largest school districts uh, in the United States. And across the bottom, the horizontal axis, these school districts are arrayed by poverty or low income level and uh, going from left to right with left being the poorest. And going up and down on the right axis is in achievement growth in grade levels. So the size of the circle represents the size of the district. And so it's pretty easy for you to find New York City, the biggest, Los Angeles, the second biggest, and then Chicago, the third biggest. So of the 100 largest school districts in the nation, Chicago showed the greatest growth. And that's 1.2 grade levels per year in this time span. This means that the average student gained about six grade levels in the five years between third and eighth grade from 2009 to 2014. And as Adam said, this rate of growth is faster than 90% of all school districts in the country. Now the Chicago finding holds true for black students, 
Hispanic students and white students. And as you can see at the same time, Chicago is far to the left on the graph as one of the poorest of the large districts. When this first came out, I was so excited by this graph. I printed it off, I made multiple copies, I tacked it on the bulletin board in my office, and I brought it to meeting after meeting with, with me, putting it on the table and say, guess which district is Chicago? Now it's kind of easy to figure out because of the size, the, you know, it's the third largest. But people were stunned when they saw this because they didn't know it and they hadn't seen it. So Chicago's an outlier here in a very good way. And it's gone a very long distance from the worst in the nation to the most improved. I want to let you know that the New York Times published a really, really beautiful interactive version of this map. Uh, it was published in December of 2017, but you can easily find it on the homepage of New York Times by searching, how effective is your school district? Uh, and once you're there on this interactive map, you can point your pointer, or you can type in any school district and you'll see the stats. And you can see Cleveland Metropolitan Schools on there as well. So after this was out, in the fall of uh, 2017, uh, my employer, the Spencer Foundation, and one of our colleagues, the Joyce Foundation, sponsored a citywide symposium with leading experts and, and civic leaders to examine, discuss, and speculate on the causes of the progress in Chicago public schools. All of these presentations and a summary report are available on the Joyce Foundation website, and I'll be happy to give you that link. So Sean was there, and he presented some more detailed findings about Chicago, and even wrote a paper on the progress in Chicago. He's got, in his presentation, he's got two kind of dramatic sets of six slides each. Six for math, six for English language arts, that erase poverty, like this one, on the horizontal axis, and the distance above or below grade level on the vertical axis. On that thing, you see the familiar correlation between test scores and poverty. As you know, as poverty decreases, test scores go up. So the first graph that he shows, that Sean shows, is third grade achievement in Chicago public schools. And there's that big bubble, and the kids in third grade are about two years behind grade level. Then he pops up the fourth grade, and the circle jumps up a little. He pops up the fifth grade, up further, all the way to eighth grade, where the kids are almost at grade level on national norms. Uh, and then Sean has corroborated these findings independently using NAEP data from the Trial Urban District Assessment. And as I think you know, NAEP is a very secure and a low states test, so the scores are not subject to any kind of manipulation. The NAEP results verify Reardon's findings showing an increase in test score from fourth to eighth grade at a rate of about 20% higher than the uh, other large U.S. districts in the national average. So at this symposium, my colleague Elaine Allensworth then presented several additional slides. She demonstrated higher rising high school graduation rates, rising college enrollment rates, increases in the percent of students taking advanced placement classes, the percent of students scoring 21 or above on the ACT, and the percent of students earning higher GPAs in high school. Fewer high school students are failing classes, 
and more are earning A's and B's. Attendance has increased and suspension rates have declined. Uh, equally important, both teachers and students are reporting better school and classroom experiences. Both feel safer in their schools. Students experience more academic press and personalism, and they report being more engaged in their classes. Uh, there's also stronger trust among the teachers themselves and between teachers and students. So following these research presentations, uh, the assembled group addressed the question of, well, what's driving these major improvements? There were a number of prominent the theories. One was that the district had had a long-term, consistent focus on strengthening principal leadership. And that work had been supported by the district and the Chicago Public Education Fund. A second prominent theory was that there was better teaching that was driven by a new teacher evaluation system and stronger academic improvements. A third was the focus on high schools and getting more freshmen on track to graduate. And I'm going to talk more about that soon. Yet uh, a final widely embraced theory was that the Chicago Public Schools used data and research to guide their policy and practice. Our, chief exec our current chief executive officer, Janice Jackson, was there, and she cited, quote, the relationships with the consortium and the effective use of data we have in Chicago as the, the, the key driver of progress. In a different setting, Dr. Jackson also said, I really think that when school systems are serious about improvements, they're not afraid to have an external partner that will serve as a mirror. Uh, the district has maintained this commitment to thoughtful use of data and research despite multiple changes in top leadership in the last decade. So this close link between research and practice is relatively uncommon. Uh, there, we hear a lot of talk about the research practice gap. I have a beautiful slide that I'm not showing that I borrowed from my friend Vivian Sen, who's the senior vice president at the William T. Grant Foundation, and she talks about research, she talks and thinks a lot about research use. So her, slab, her, her, her graph uh, is about bridging the gap between research and practice. So it depicts two precipices that are disconnected with this vast chasm in between. And she's trying to talk about uh, how we can bridge that gap. And she recounts kind of early narrative uh, about bringing research to practice, which emphasized conducting more rigorous research, often randomized controlled trials, developing better dissemination or push-out models, and by offering incentives like Race to the Top and the I3 grant programs to induce research use. But she and people like me, I, uh, also believe that these kind of efforts were insufficient and that research use is not research to practice, uh, but it's got to be a two-way reciprocal street between research and practice, with practice influencing research as much as research influences practice. We need to complement rigor with relevance and usefulness. Uh, 
We don't need to disseminate, we need to engage people. And we need to build capacity on both sides to do this kind of work. So I think, a lot of people think that this idea of a research practice partnership is a good way to bridge this gap. Uh, a, and an influential paper described RPPs as long-term mutualistic collaborations between practitioners and researchers that are intentionally organized to investigate problems of practice and solutions for improving district outcomes. I'm going to briefly mention five characteristics. They're long-term. They focus on problems of practice and not theory. Uh, they are committed to mutualism, and that's the district and the researchers working in each other's interest. They are intentional about fostering partnerships. That means they talk to each other a lot, and they do original analyses. So this, this model, this RPP model, has spread with funding from the Institute of Sciences, the Spencer Foundation, and others. At this point, there's even a national network called the National Network for Education Research Practice Partnerships that has about 30 members, uh, including the University of Chicago Consortium and CARE. Okay, I want to talk about some actual research. And this is a, I'm going to talk about the uh, history, development, and use of what we call the freshman on track indicator. So this started in the late 1990s when the consortium got requests from elementary school principals who wanted to know what happened to their eighth grade graduates when they moved into high school. They couldn't, find, they couldn't get them on the system. So they wanted to know where did they go to high school and how well did they do. So we created this report that shows where the graduates of each elementary school went to high school and whether they graduated or not. But we wanted to show progress in a more fine-grained way than just entering high school or graduating. We wanted to track kids over the four or five years and show where they dropped off. So we developed this simple indicator of on track to graduate. And a simple definition, a ninth grade student needs to earn five full credits and get no more than one semester F in a core subject to be called on track. So this is really a very low bar because kids need 24 credits to graduate, so they're behind in credit accumulation, but they can be on track. So what this the chart that some of you can see, it tracks the graduating class of eighth graders through four or five years of high school, color-coded kids green for on track, orange for off track, red for dropped out, and blue for left, left the system. And what we saw by examining hundreds of these reports was that the kids who were on track at the end of the freshman year, those are the green kids on that bottom bar, uh, they turn into uh, blue kids. They turn into green, green kids. They turn into blue kids who graduate four years later. And similarly, the orange kids, the off track, uh, turn into red kids or drop out. Uh, these were very expensive, time consuming. Uh, and I don't think a lot of principals actually use them, but it launched this 20 years of work uh, on this topic of the importance of freshman year. A couple of years later, we released a big report on the state of Chicago public high schools. And we reported on course-taking patterns, test scores, graduation rates. 
And there was this little bitty piece on the on-track rate that said being on track is highly correlated with long-term performances. Students who are off track after their first year have a very hard time catching up and graduating. And 78% of freshmen who were on track graduated within four years, and only 16% of kids who were off track did. So our new CEO at the time was a guy named Arnie Duncan, and he, he read this whole report. And I think it's the last time that a superintendent or CEO has read a 75-page technical report, but he caught this piece on the freshman on track rate, and he said, I want to put that on the high school accountability system. I want high schools to be accountable for the percent of freshmen who are on track. So this put us in a little of a bit of us at the consortium, we needed some more technical uh, backup for this, not a paragraph and a big report. So my colleague Elaine Allensworth and I wrote a couple of papers on this. And the first report showed the same kind of statistics, 81% of on-track students graduated, whereas only 22% uh, off-track graduated. It also had a very, very compelling figure. It grouped first-year freshmen into four quartiles based on their entering test score achievement. So from the lowest, the lowest prepared kids to the strongest prepared kids. And as you would guess, uh, the better your preparation, the more likely it is that you're going to graduate. But it also shows that this relationship between on-track and off-track holds up no matter what your entering test score was. And kind of dramatically, it showed that the students from the lowest entering quartile, that is the least prepared students, who had a successful freshman year, that is they were on track, were much more likely, almost twice as likely, to graduate than our strongest kids who fell off track in freshman year. So this is helping us understand that the freshman experience is pivotal. It really is a make or break year. Uh, our next paper dug more deeply into the factors related to uh, being on track. And it's pretty simple. Being on track is driven by good attendance and by avoiding Fs. But we learned a, a little bit more about that. We learned that kids in schools that had strong supportive cultures and climates were much more likely to be on track. So kids with a similar background who attend uh, different schools, but the ones where the st uh, student-teacher uh, trust is stronger, those kids have fewer failures, better attendance, and better grades. So I just want to uh, make sure that uh, I'm standing on firm ground here. Uh, so this is a on-track rates for the last 15 or 20 years. And you can see the on-track rate has steadily risen. I want you to see the graduation rates of those same kids four years later. Uh, they're, as you see, nearly identical. As the freshman track on-track rate goes up, graduation rates follow them. And as you can see, the graduation rate has risen from 57% in 2006 to 74 in 2016, and it's up a little since then. 
Okay, I gotta tell you, how did this happen? But I wanna mention this wonderful brand new book called The Make or Break Year that chronicles uh, the lives of teachers and kids in two high schools in Chicago. One near the old stockyards and one on the southwest side near Midway Airport. And it really brings to life the struggles of teachers and kids to change their mindsets about the importance of freshman year. That with support and help, even the weakest kids can succeed. And failure doesn't help kids. It hurts them. Uh, it discourages them and reinforces negative measures. So these tough schools succeeded by turning this around. Um, the book does a wonderful job of discussing the difficult conversations among teachers about grading practices, about giving Fs, and about how do you support struggling students. So when I step back, I want to ask, well, why did this research have so much influence in Chicago? Uh, there are several ideas that come to my mind. Uh, first, which I think is really important, most people believed the research. They didn't question its credibility, its validity, its accuracy. And they trusted the researchers. And they trusted us because they knew us and we were in the system, we were in their schools, we were in their central office. We were highly visible. Elaine and I presented the studies that I mentioned countless times across the city, engaging with central office leaders, school leaders, and teachers. And we didn't just stop studying the topic, but we continued to release new studies building on what we knew about freshmen on track. Second, of course, uh, Arnie Duncan promoted the importance of this indicator, put it on the school accountability system. And we had several uh, early uh, adopter principals who believed in this and wanted to use it to improve their schools. And one of those principals is about to become superintendent of schools in a very nearby district. Um, now, many of these principals also work together in what we call an intermediary group. It's called the Network for College Success that supported principals and helped them learn from each other so as they tried things out, they could talk about it, their successes and failures. It's also important to recognize that the school district created more timely data reports. So teachers know which one of their kids are failing and not coming to class, but they don't know how the, those students are doing in other classes. So they centralized this data about failures and attendance so that they could get it very quickly to schools so that uh, school teams would know who's falling on track. Uh, many schools also acquired uh, new resources. Some hired freshmen on track coaches or additional counselors or other staff to spearhead their efforts. So I think there's an additional critical factor here. Uh, the district didn't mandate programs. Instead, they relied on teachers and principals' wisdom of practice. Those are the ones who decided how best to support freshmen based on their own understandings of the students, their families, and their communities. And they chose whether to implement peer coaching models, after-school tutoring sessions, parent outreach programs, or other approaches. And they sh shared these successes and failures with others through groups such as the Network for College Success and with their area network chiefs. 
So we had high quality research, better and timely data, resources, a little bit of pressure from the top, but not a lot, and a lot reliance on the real experts to help them understand the problems that they knew best. So I mentioned Janice Jackson before. She's now CEO. A year or two ago, she was chief education officer, and she talked about this process. First came the research, then the data. It's when the schools got the resources and support that all that, to put all that into practice that we saw a dramatic spike in outcomes. So this model contrasts with another prevalent theory of research use, the one that I described earlier as the one-way street from research to practice. That model recommends that schools adopt proven programs and implement them with fidelity. And no doubt that is appropriate under some circumstances. But I think the Chicago example is much more aligned with uh, a research use as a two-way street. Uh, good research drives smart people to harness the wisdom of practice in a disciplined manner while continually attending to what the data says about progress. Uh, and the research continues to evolve in response to practice. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Excellent. I'm Dan Walthrop with the City Club, and today we are listening to a forum and enjoying a forum with Dr. John Easton, Senior Fellow for the University of Chicago Consortium on School Research. We're about to begin our audience Q&A, and we welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club, and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are Marketing and Outreach Coordinator Julia Wong and Content Coordinator Bliss Davis. May we have our first question, please? Uh, Dr. Easton, thank you for joining us and enlightening us. Uh, education's a core issue here in Cleveland and we appreciate uh, your, your perspective and experience. In the people that were, or in the students that were off track and the responses to them being off track, what you mentioned a couple programs and support and you said that it varied. Did you track the effectiveness of those different uh, responses? And maybe if you could elaborate on what some of the responses were besides uh, you know, the, the support. That's a great Thank question. You. Um, th one of my biggest career regrets is that we didn't systematically follow that because we were too in the thick of it at the time. Uh, but there was a whole range of kinds of approaches. And actually, Emily Crone's book does a beautiful job talking about them. But there, there were people who brought in programs, Becoming a Man. There were black, black mentorship programs to, uh, all over the place. And schools were very creative at how they used their resources, some of them. I got a little bit of money from the district for what I called on-track coaches. Others had city year kinds of people. So it really varied. And uh, the kind of reporting that Emily did in her book talks about two schools, but there's a whole range of, of examples in there. And what I have to say is that it was a struggle. Um, it really was. It was. For one thing, a lot of teachers feel, well, kids learn from failure. And sort of changing, so it's, it is a mindset change. Uh, changing away from, well, well, our job is to help these kids succeed, 
not let them learn from failure. Um, hello, uh, I'm a student from Solon High School, and my question is, if student-teacher trust correlates with the student's performance, would having personal teachers throughout the high school education improve their performance? So that's a great question. So in our work at the consortium, we've done a lot of work with surveys of both teachers and students, and there are a lot of questions about trust. We ask about how much the teachers trust each other to build a supportive environment with themselves, where there tends to be much more coherence among the programs, among, among instructional uh, procedures and so forth. We ask about trust between the teachers and the parents, trust between the teachers and the uh, students. So I think that what really matters is kids having good relationships with a couple of adults. And whether that can happen when you have seven teachers for seven classes or just a handful of teachers for those classes, I'm not sure. I think it's going to depend on the curriculum. It's going to depend on the circumstances of the school. But the, the key idea is that you trusting that your teachers have your best interests at heart is what matters. Thank you. Thank you for your remarks. I just have very basic questions. You're talking about high school. So you're talking about students that are on track as they're entering high school or they've gotten on track while they're in high school. So, because if so, then if you're doing anything at the lower levels right. to work with them. Now, what I showed you was all about the freshman year. And um, one of our findings was that some, you don't, you're not sure who's gonna fall off track because this transi transitions are always hard for all kids. The one to high school is especially hard because of developmental stage that they're at. Um, but we do find that even strong kids fall off track and weak kids with the right supports do very well and stay on track. That said, uh, the school district, Chicago Public Schools, has been investigating middle grade indicators and find that they're very helpful and very useful. But we still come back to the finding that the freshman year is special and being on track is extra important in the freshman year. Hi, I'm also a student from Solon High School. Um, it just sounds like, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Um, it sounds like Chicago was a very uh, big success and it will continue to be a success. But do you have any plans for other schools that are also struggling to keep kids on track? So that, that uh, work on the on-track indicator has really uh, spread quite a bit. And a lot of school districts use what they call early warning indicators. I like ours especially because it's simple. Two indicators, passing classes, uh, accumulating credits and not failing. Uh, and it's something that you can monitor very, very quickly and easily. Uh, this work is used in quite a few other districts right now, I'm happy to say. Um, People have written about the comparative indicators uh, and shown how, which ones predicts best and so forth. But, uh, but this one, given its simplicity uh, and its kind of appeal to people because it's, it's transparent what goes into it and the understanding that it's all driven by attendance and passing. the term indicator a few times, and an indicator that I have a question about is uh, mobility. 
here in Cleveland, we have a, a, a major issue with students being in more than one school during a given academic year. Yeah. I just looked up the Illinois report card from last year in all in Chicago. I, I couldn't find high school specific. It was about 11% mobility. How does that play into the success of keeping students on track by being in the same school each year? That is a great question, and I'm sorry I can't tell you the answer. But my guess is that a move in freshman year is extremely disruptive and probably negatively impacts a kid's a chance of failure. Unless it's a child getting out of a horrible circumstances into a much better one. Um, I just want to thank you for investing in the education and research for like uh, the next generation, because I think that'll make a big difference in the future. But what I want to ask you is, when you mentioned the main factors that contributed to the school success. You talked about good leadership, um, good teachers, and you also talked about the relationship of trust between the student and the teacher. Um, growing up in school, I heard a lot about how it's just as big um, of a factor at home that it is at school for the success of a student. Did you look into that in your research? And if you did, did you find um, how important that was? Well, you're absolutely right. That's a wonderful question. We all know that family support and home conditions play a huge role in kids' success. So we're more interested in things that we can change uh, in the schools than things that are harder to change, like a kid's family life. So we focus on, well, how do we help kids who are having trouble at home? How can we engage parents more productively in this work? Um, but but we'd rather focus on things that we as the adults in the schools can actually uh, make a difference with, uh, but we want to be aware of the kind of problems the students are having. Uh, my question was, uh, you talked about um, building the relationships between the practitioners and the researchers, but how do we bring in additional stakeholders, whether it is parents or community leaders? You know, the more, the more people that care, the better off you are. And uh, what's great about uh, a venue like this is bringing people from multiple sectors across the city. And that is really, really important. Um, I'm just hoping that this work uh, at the district and the university and AAR uh, has that kind of civic support that will lift it up, that will help people more broadly understand that the school district can be helped by practical research and having some sort of civic investment in that work. We talked earlier today uh, at the district with, uh, with district folks and other researchers about choosing the most appropriate things to study. Well, you want to choose that based on what the whole broad community thinks is important and choose topics where you think you can make a difference and so forth, but, but that's great. I just. Uh, the, the more stakeholder groups you've got with some skin in the game here, the better you all are. Um, good afternoon. Uh, I sit on the State Board of Education. My name is Merle Johnson, and I want to appreciate uh, the research that you've done. Um, in 2015, G2 Brown, who heads up an organization called Journey for Justice Alliance, um, and along with 12 community members in order to reopen a high school that had been closed. And because there were so many schools being closed in Chicago, they actually went on a 34-day hunger strike to be able to reopen um, the school. And, and so it's pretty obvious that Chicago has a very committed community uh, to making sure that the children are successful. 
Now the previous speaker mentioned community, but I'm, I'm wondering, um, did you when, you, when you make your list of here's what works, I didn't hear anything about community or community partnerships. So um, does your research include uh, any of that? And also, real quick, second question, um, was there any uh, research on the student voice? Were students directly involved in, in uh, the success? Was there student leadership? Was there anything about the, the student voice within the district? It's two questions, sorry. <laughs> uh, I don't know quite where to begin on that. Um, I think that we take student voice very seriously in Chicago. Part of our annual surveys, um, which are called the, the Five E survey as a student survey, and the reason uh, that information is collected is to provide schools a uh, systematic way of student voice. And the most active schools are looking at that data and talking to their students about it, definitely. You know, the bigger question of community uh, involvement, it, it, it's a very, very, very important one. Um, as you probably know, Chicago Public Schools closed 48 schools four, four years ago. And my organization documented that very, very carefully. Uh, we found that the students who left the closed schools, it impaired their uh, educational achievement. They did worse. Uh, which was, had not always been true in the past. There were other instances where after school closed, uh, students take a temporary bump but then recover. We didn't see recovery this time. But that study was a, also a multi-method study that uh, interviewed a lot of parents, teachers, and students to really understand the impact of the school closings. And we found that the psychological and emotional impacts were much stronger than we would have seen from any of the statistical evidence. So this was uh, helped reaffirm our belief that most research is much better when you're not just collecting numbers, but when you're talking to people. Uh, that really strengthens the work. Hi. Um, First of all, I think I have to say that I'm a Chicago Public Schools alum uh, now serving on the Cleveland Board of Education, so I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, and my question is relating to one of the reports by the consortium on, I think it was on the charter, University of Chicago charter, and it mentioned, um, I like that it used the words um, parent-teacher partnerships rather than just parent engagement, but it mentioned parent-teacher partnerships as being really integral to getting students on track. I wondered if you could speak to parent-teacher partnerships and you know, what the, how those were formed, how, what the school district or what the charter schools did to form those and really develop them intentionally. So I think you're referring to a specific book about um, exemplary instruction that uh, was a study of the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago runs a charter school that has four campuses, two elementary, a middle, and a high school. Um, and researchers documented this very well and showed that the students had stronger academic gains than kids who were not admitted by lottery, so they were randomly equivalent groups of students. And they talk a lot about what the schools did. So there was a strong commitment in that school to the parent partnership. There were a lot of resources invested in that work. Um, I would say that that's typical in the best schools that 
try that. I wouldn't say that that's typical across all schools. Hi, my name's Ryan. Um, as a, a teacher, I was convinced that my grades were objective. Uh, and a short time after becoming a school leader a number of years ago, I found that uh, I was wholly wrong in the subjectivity of the grades that I was, I was uh, having to deal with across uh, multiple, multiple teachers and classrooms with hundreds of students uh, was, was very evident. Was there any control done in your research to determine if, if not, not just grading practices themselves, but letter grades, percentage grades themselves were, were wholly uh, not doing the job in indicating student achievement, but also propelling student achievement? Well, I have a slightly different perspective on teacher grades. Uh, I've done a, a fair amount of research on them at all. Uh, I wrote a paper a year ago. It was called The Predictive Power of Ninth Grade GPA. And arguably, uh, teacher assigned grades are subjective. There aren't good standards for them. There's not consistent understanding of what an A, B, or C means. Even so, when you look at a grade point average, which of course is multiple observations, it becomes highly reliable across teachers. So freshman GPA predicts high school graduation, college enrollment, and college retention better than test scores. So what this is telling me that in spite of the problems in the grades, it is a more valid predictor and I think it's because it's picking up multi-dimensional things. It's not picking up just achievement. We know that grades are related to achievement on test scores. The study I did showed that kids with higher grades also made greater improvements on their test scores. So it's per picking up something in addition to the, um, the strict academic achievement. And that's probably non-cognitive things. It's probably about attitude. It's probably things that we think of as subjective. But it turns out those are important things. So where I come out on this is that I really want to understand what those other things are and try to make that more systematic. Um, if I can go off a little bit, um, I'm working. So for nine years, I was, in, I was in Washington for five and a foundation for four, and I didn't get to do any research. Now, now I've got numbers and, I'm, uh, and people, and I'm having a ball. Um, <laughs> I really am. Uh, so in Chicago public schools, girls get higher grades than boys. And um, girls report being more engaged in their classrooms. They show up more often. They, get, they don't get in trouble as much often. They have better study habits. They come into high schools with better preparation, yet those things don't explain statistically the difference. So, so uh, the school district uses an electronic grading system where teachers enter every mark. And there are grading categories like assignments, quizzes, tests, homework, class participation. And they enter fine-grained data. So I want to get that data, uh, which they have promised us, and see what kinds of these classroom behaviors that we can see are contributing to this gender gap in grades. So I kind of agree with you about the subjectivity of the grades, but there's a lot in that subjectivity that's really important. Teachers are making judgments about behaviors and attitudes. We can't name what they are, but they predict future success much better than test scores do. 
So how can we get to the point where we understand what it is and we can make it a little more systematic to take out bias, for example? Do teachers just automatically, girls are better behaved so they get better grades? Are there stereotypical kinds of biases and how can we eliminate them? Hi, uh, my name is Shan and I have a question about algebra. Um, I know, I think it was at a city club Cleveland talk a couple years ago about how algebra is one of the biggest factors for kids dropping out of high school and college. And I just wondered if your research had any insight on that. So um, in freshman year in Chicago Public Schools, uh, uh, math is the most failed subject. Um, but science is close behind it. So it's not all that far apart. Uh, we're finding that any failure is important. I told you that that on-track indicator looked at failures in core subjects, English, science, math, social studies. Well, we're finding that failures in art and failures in PE are just as damaging. The, the, the There's surprisingly high failure rates in PE and in art. And PE, it's because the kid didn't change, didn't change into the gym suit or something. Um, so why can't we figure out how to <laughs> get around that? Um, uh, so from our perspective, yes, I think algebra failure is bad, but almost any failure is almost as bad. Thank you for your talk this afternoon. You mentioned the importance of research to practice, and two things that you mentioned was the, the relevance of curriculum and the dissemination of data. Did your research find that curriculum relevance as far as engaging students, ninth grade students in particular, into maybe a more of a trade-based education? So oftentimes it's not offered until later on in high school. It doesn't necessarily keep the children engaged. And in addition to that, uh, dissemination of data. We hear so much about sports analytics and corporations have IT departments to dis disseminate the data at high levels. Do you find that school districts are faced with challenges of having the IT infrastructure to get the data disseminated to the stu students, teachers, and the administrators. Thank you. So I'm, I can't answer your curriculum question about my, what my knowledge of Chicago public schools, but clearly, you know, relevance, especially cultural relevance, is really important for kids. I do know of some work in uh, San Francisco Unified School District that a couple of years ago for their freshman class, they rolled out an ethnic studies class. And the way they rolled it out allowed for a very rigorous test of its effects. It had enormous positive effects. I mean, attendance rates rose by 50%. Kids, kids did better on everything because this curriculum really, really engaged them. So I, the data question is a huge one. Um, there's a person employed at Chicago Public Schools who does nothing but manage these partnerships. Uh, and people, you know, there's enormous amounts of data. We, we're concerned about data security. We're, we, we have, uh, it's a very big issue. And often data are kind of promulgated and distributed as an answer. And I, I think data alone <laughs> just isn't enough. You have to understand how it fits in, what it's telling you. So I, I think the data use question like the research is, is very complex and alone a bunch of data isn't going to help anybody until you know what to do with it. 
Hi, John. <laughs> um, I'm so glad that you're here. I think this is such a, um, a wonderful talk. Um, I want to um, go back to the on-track indicator um, and ask a question about that. Um, a lot of the work that we're doing through um, CARE has to do with uh, subgroups of um, underrepresented or at-risk uh, students. So have you done or has a consortium done any research on subgroup differences um, in that on-track indicator? And if so, what are the results of that? Well, uh, I'm probably not up to speed on this because of my absence for so long. But what I can say is the on-track indicator is equally predictive by subgroup. So its predictive power doesn't change across race, gender. And in fact, um, doesn't change for EL or special ed. Um, so it, it's, it holds just as well. Can you remind me of the second part of your question? Well, you kind of answered it, so you can say it that way. <laughs> um, and I have a cookie in my mouth. But um, <laughs> um, you know, if there are differences, what, what have you found? That, that was my second Well, there are definitely differences in on-track rates going in the ways you would expect them to be. Um, well, I talked about the gender gap in grades. Well, there's a gender gap in on track, and it's it's big. It's quite big. Um, now I lost my. Uh, <laughs> help me. The differences between the subgroups and the, the differences are on there. track indicator. Yeah. The differences are there in being on track, but the difference between the graduation rates of the on track and off track kids are the same. That's what holds. Good afternoon, and again, thank you for being here. Uh, in thinking about the development of CARE and uh, your experience with the consortium there in Chicago, just wondering, um, in terms of reflective advice, uh, some challenges that you might have experienced there that maybe we don't have to experience here in Cleveland, uh, what might your greatest advice be for us? So this work depends on relationships and trust. It's just that's the bottom line. There's the communication across the partners, the belief in the school district that the researchers have their best, even if there's bad news, their best interest is at heart. The bad news is going to be shaped in a way that can lead to improvements. And um, it's got to be this reciprocal kind of a trusting relationship. Uh, just a story. We did a study once that followed ninth graders into college and through college. So at the time of the study, of 100 kids who started ninth grade in Chicago public schools, nine years later, six graduated. And this was a, this was a headline on the Chicago Tribune with like stick figures, 100 stick figures, and six of them graduated from college. And it was a horrible experience for the school district. It was, kind of, it was kind of a shock. This was pulled out of a, and you know, we just went back and we said this, we did everything we could to kind of mend that relationship. So there, there are times when things fray, but one of the things I said about the five key elements of a research practice partnership was this intentional um, relationship building. So it's work. And they have to be committed to working through these things uh, to avoid those uh, difficult uh, situations. Uh, 
Thank you. Thank you very much, John. I have so many questions. Um, today at the City Club, we've been listening to a forum with Dr. John Easton. He's Senior Fellow for the University of Chicago Consortium on School Research. Our forum today is part of our Education Innovation Series, sponsored by the Nordson Corporation Foundation. We're delighted to have representatives of Nordson, including Cecilia Render, with us today. Thank you so much for your continued support of City Club programming. Our community partner for our program today is the Center for Educational Leadership at Cleveland State University. Additionally, we welcome students at St. Martin de Porres and Solon High School. We also uh, want to mention that support for student participation in City Club forums comes from Key Bank and the William M. Weiss Foundation, with additional support from donors that you'll find listed in our program today. We thank all of you for being here today. That brings us to the end of today's forum. There are a number of takeaways from our forum today, too, I wanted to say. And if any of you have a, a desire to blog about those, we'd be delighted to publish that blog at our website at cityclub.org. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being a part of this today. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.